And if you'll read with me the passage of Scripture out of Exodus chapter 4, verse 18 to 23. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do, do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. All right, did you find your way to Exodus chapter 4? We're beginning, we're continuing our study here in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, is what I should say. Just remind us where we're at. Moses has been born. Moses has murdered a guy. Moses has fled for his life. He is now 80 years old, having spent the last 40 years of his life living in obscurity, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. Then he runs into God, who has presented himself to Moses in a bush that is on fire, yet not being consumed. God tells Moses that he is going to call him, and he wants him to go back to Egypt and bring his people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt, out from under Pharaoh, and lead them uh, to the promised land. So that's all. No big deal. And here in verse 18, we finally have Moses going. And so the title of the message today is Moses uh, Moved by God's Purpose. Moved by God's Purpose. And I want us to think about this a little bit as Moses now, having heard the call of God in his life, despite the fact that his life up to this point has been 80 years of sort of, not a train wreck, but close, just not doing anything right, really. And now God has called him out of that, and he says, I want you to come out of your life of exile, out of your life of disobedience, out of rebellion. I want you to, to do something for me. And move, Moses is moved by God's purpose, God's purpose to redeem his people. I'm sure, maybe you know somebody in your life who had an encounter with God, maybe at an event, at a conference, or maybe just in reading the word and prayer, and they say, you know what, I'm doing everything wrong. They quit their job, and they go out in the mission field quit their job and go into ministry training, or they make some other radical change in their life, and it kind of leaves your head spinning. Like, where'd that come from? Why would people do that? You might, might say, hey, you know, simmer down. Jesus' thing is great, but you don't need to throw everything out. People who leave their normal life to, to serve the Lord in a variety of ways, and you'd say, well, why do they do that? Well, it's for the same reason that Moses did. It's they're suddenly, by the work of God and His Spirit, moved by God's purpose. What's interesting is it doesn't just have to be for those people who maybe leave everything in their life behind and move uh, out in the mission field or do some other thing. That actually applies to normal life, too, if I could say normal in quotes, if you could do it that way. Is, can we as Christians be moved by God's purpose in the regular rhythms and routines of our life? And I would suggest we can. And In fact, that's what I want to do today as we work our way through Moses' life here in this section of Exodus is see how we can understand God's purpose and be moved by his purpose and actually approach the regular rhythms and rhythms and routines of our life in a way that demonstrates we also have been moved by God's purpose. Look at the first few verses, verses 18, 19, and 20 of Exodus 4. Pat read them. This is right after God, uh, Moses got done talking with God at the burning bush. We should probably not say so much that Moses was talking with God. Moses was arguing with God. Moses didn't like God's plan. He didn't like his intention. He didn't like his role in it. He didn't like a lot of things about it. In fact, we might describe Moses at the end of verse 17 of Exodus chapter 4 of having a very bad attitude. 
But now, all of a sudden, in verse 18, he goes back to his father-in-law and says, Hey, I'm leaving. I'm taking your daughter with me and your grandkids with me. You're going to have to take care of your own sheep. Let me go back to Egypt and see if everybody's alive there. That's a lie. He knows they're alive. Why is Moses lying? It's a silly question if you have in-laws. Never lied to your in-laws. And you know what? That's a silly. Well, yeah, we, we, we expect Moses to do something we wouldn't. Of course, he's making the case without having to disclose all of God's plans. I, well, father in law uh, Dad, <laughs> saw a burning bush. Really? And you want to take Zipporah with you and my grandkids? Tell you what, Moses, go out, find yourself, whatever you're doing. Come back when you got your head right, and then you can have my daughter. But that's not what happens. Moses explains to his father-in-law, I'm going. Why is Moses doing this? And let me, let me characterize it this way, and we're going to use this as a way of understanding each of the sections here this morning. Moses is moved by God's purpose, and then Moses, moved by God's purpose, does something. In this case, having understood God's purpose to redeem the people of Israel out of Egypt, he then does something. And the first thing he does here is he goes to his father-in-law and says, I'm leaving. What do we call it when we're moved by God's purpose and then as, a, as a, a result of that, we respond in some tangible way? Do you know the fancy church word for it? That's called worship. God is great. God is wonderful. He's filled with grace and love, and I see what he's doing in my life and the world around me, and I want to be a part of that. And, and what the Bible calls that when we serve God out of a heart of gratitude when we serve God out of a heart of faith, believing in what he's up to, that's called worship. So Moses, moved by the purpose of God to redeem his people out of Israel, worships God, not by singing a song, not by praying, not by giving money, not by volunteering at the soup kitchen. He worships God by telling his father-in-law, I have to go back to Egypt and I have to take my family with me. Let me summarize Moses this way. Moses here is responding to God's purpose as an act of worship, and now he says, you know what, now I have a calling. I no longer just have a job. Moved by God's purpose, Moses now says, I have a calling. I no longer just have a job. Up to this point, Moses' job was to be a good husband, a good father, and a good shepherd. And Moses now says, I have something more than a job. I have a calling. Another way we could say this is this. Moses is saying to his father-in-law, Jethro, I have served you. But now, responding to God's purpose in worship, I will now serve God. My calling as a shepherd was a job, or you should say his job was a shepherd, and his calling is to shepherd God's people. And so for Moses, he had to leave the safety and security and the predictability of his life. A job, a wife kids and say, God is moving me in worship to encounter my life no longer as one who simply is employed or has a vocation, but one who has a calling. A calling is very different from a job. And whether that job is a place of employment or that job is uh, in your home or that job is whatever you spend the most of your time doing, Generally, we do stuff that we might call a job because we anticipate getting something out of it. Most employees, I would anticipate, go to work because they would expect at regular intervals to get paid. They say, well, no, my employees really just love the job they have. Okay, then test it out. See if they keep coming. They won't, and you'll get letters from attorneys. What does Moses get out of his calling? We know what happens in Moses' life. We know the end of the story. Moses, in leaving his home and his job with his wife and his kids, is now going to spend the rest of his life in the wilderness. And he will die in the wilderness. What he is going to get out of his calling is a vital relationship with the living God. That's very different than a job. Moses, encountering God's purpose the glory and power of who God is, he responds with worship to move out and follow God in his calling. What I, the reason I want us to understand this, here's the distinction. 
Moses is not following God to try and impress God in order to gain relationship with him. Moses wasn't seeking a relationship with God. Who sought the relationship? God did. Moses is responding to God because God has already given him relationship. And he says, this God is worth serving with my whole life. Moses had encountered the living God. He met the living God. He understood that God was the living God and the redeeming God. He understood that God is the one who brings hope. God is the one who brings purpose. And he wasn't going to let go of God, even in the midst of his terrible attitude. I love Moses. Worshiping God, serving God, following God in obedience, and has a terrible attitude. Do you know when Moses' attitude will finally get good? Better? Do you know when Moses will finally have a good attitude? It's called the Mount of Transfiguration, and it's in the Gospels. This guy is upset his, almost his entire life. Sometimes we get this picture in our minds that good, obedient Christians skip around. The big, silly smile on their face. Now, certainly, being in the Lord and knowing Him brings us joy, but Moses is great for those of us who wonder, how does this story end? Is it worth it? Because Moses struggled with that his whole life. But Moses, having met God, wasn't going to let go, and he was going to respond to God in worship by following him in the calling and no longer seeing himself merely as having a job. Now, in order for Moses to obey God in his calling, he had to leave his life. He couldn't stay in Midian and go to Egypt. He couldn't stay a shepherd of sheep and also shepherd Israel. And so in order for Moses to be obedient to God and his calling, he had to leave his life, his job, his family. But the fact is, we don't all have to do that. You don't need to quit your job and fly to Egypt. The fact is, we can look at the life we live now and say, if God is who he says he is, and if he has moved in my heart in gratitude that he has redeemed a sinner such as I, how can I look at the regular rhythms and routines of my life and instead of looking at it as a job, responsibilities, how can I see the regular routines of my life as a calling? Well, the fact is we can, and we see it over in Ephesians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there because I'm only going to look at it for just a moment, but you're welcome to if you want. Ephesians 1, 3, we studied it more last year at this time. Here's what we read about us as Christians today. When was that time we met God as a burning bush, so to speak? It's when we encountered Christ by faith. And here is what the Bible says is true of all of those in Christ by faith. This is Ephesians 1, 3, and I'm going to read until, until I stop. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Number one, what's true about every Christian? Blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now think of that one guy you know, that one Christian, who's a really lousy one. I mean, he's a terrible Christian. And you say, well, I would never think that. Yes, you do, so let's just be honest. Think of that one person, they're like, they're terrible. This is true of them. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but they're lousy at it. I know, it's crazy. Just so you know, they also think you're the lousy Christian, so two of you are thinking of each other in this moment. Um, and you're probably thinking of me, and that's fine. Continuing on, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, he, adopt, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. What's true of every Christian? Adopted into the family of Christ as sons and daughters of the king. Are you thinking of that same lousy Christian guy? Adopted. Well, he's not the favorite son. Yes, he is. Everybody's favorite. This was to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. That means we're in his family. Through his blood we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. How many of our sins are forgiven? All of them. According to the riches of his grace. He has forgiven us according to the riches of his grace. We need to understand that means he did not forgive us according to the amount of our sin. He forgave us according to the riches of his grace. Which is bigger? 
our sin or His grace? His grace. You went to the restaurant, you had no money, you charged a $400 bill for sushi. I know, now you're all hungry. You call them up, I don't know what, it, I don't know what happened. I just went blind with sushi. Spent 400 bucks. He shows up, how much does he pay? He pays not in accordance with the bill, but in accordance with his wealth. So he pays him $1,000. So he forgives our trespasses in accordance with the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Lavish means barely enough, right? No. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose set forth in Christ to fulfill all things under Christ. So we encounter this God who forgives all of our trespasses, adopts us as his children, makes us heir to the kingdom of God itself, and he says, are you moved by my purpose? And your heart by the Spirit is moved. God, I love your purpose. Therefore, I want to respond to your purpose in worship and no longer approach the regular rhythms and routines of my life as jobs and responsibilities, but instead to say, I am called in this. I am called to be one who is redeemed in this place today. I said, well, what does that mean? We won't turn there, but you just read Ephesians chapter 5. How does a husband respond to his wife as one called out into the family of God? He says, you love your wife the way Christ loved the church. How does Christ love the church? He dies for her, it says in Ephesians chapter 5. Well, what if we're not getting along? Thank the Lord he didn't wait to die for us when we were getting along with him. He says, this is how you can approach your marriage as a calling to love and submit to one another out of a love like Christ did because you have a responding in worship to the Lord in your marriage. How does parenting look? What does it mean, fathers, to approach parenting in a way that says, I want to build up my children, not exasperate them. That's what it says in Ephesians 5. Children, what does it look like to be a child in the home? The Bible says, if I am called by Christ and want to respond to him to worship, what's it say in Ephesians 5? Children, obey your parents. What if my parents are asking me to do unreasonable things? Kids, the parents right now are restraining laughter. All parents ask kids to do unreasonable things. And the Bible says, obey your parents in the Lord. Notice it doesn't say obey your parents because your parents are worth obeying. That this is one who looks at our relationships in life and says, if I am called by Christ out of this world, how do I do this? How do employees approach the work? Again, look at Ephesians chapter 5. Work hard as unto the Lord. Not just simply trying to please your boss, but trying to worship God at work. Employees, what would your work look like if every activity at work was an act of worship? How would you approach your job? How would you approach your fellow employees? How would you approach your boss? Listen, you don't know my boss. I don't. Well, I might, but I don't. But the Bible says we serve unto the Lord. Now, those of us who are bosses are also called in Ephesians chapter 5 for those who work for us. To, to serve our employees the way the Lord serves his people. To not be harsh. How would we manage our business dealings if every activity of our life in business and work was an act of worship? See, this, Moses was called out of his life to worship God into another calling. Most of us, though, are redeemed in a particular sphere of influence and God is saying, now look at the regular routines and rhythm of your life and say, what if this wasn't just a responsibility, but instead as one called out into the kingdom of God, I'm going to approach marriage and parenting and work and business as an act of worship where I'm going to worship God with my activities. What if my life was not where I do my job and then I try to seek the Lord on the weekends? What if I am called to seek the Lord each waking moment. 
God's purpose is that we would be called to worship Him, not in just a job, but in a calling. So worship changes what we do. We no longer just have a job, we have a calling. It also changes what we don't do. Look at verses 21 through 23 of Exodus 4 again. Keep moving on. Moved by God's purpose to worship, we can say this about these few verses, I have freedom, not bondage. I don't know if you know this, but apparently there's a big lottery prize right now. Nobody won it this weekend. Are you paying attention to this? Apparently it was almost a billion bucks, right? And then um, nobody won it. So now uh, it's like $1.6 billion. Now, I'm not like a, an accountant. It seems like a lot of money. So what they do on the news, the news does two things when they have these big lottery prizes. They First thing they do is tell you how much you lose in taxes, because you only end up with like $700 million. I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> the other thing they do is they interview people standing in line to win the lottery, and they say, well, what would you do with the money? Yeah, everybody has a lot of, but, but you, as you would expect, these are pretty routine answers. I would pay off my debt, buy the house, buy, pay off the car. Uh, you know, I'd travel. And quit my job. So what, how people view a windfall like this is that now because of this financial windfall, I now have freedom from some of the things that right now constrain me. I have to earn money to make a living, and so I have to show up to, to work every day. I have to show up to work every day because I have a mortgage and a car payment. And, and winning this lottery would free me up of all those things, and now I would have freedom to go do other things. And and what God is telling Moses is, I want you to go uh, to Egypt as an act of worship and let Israel know they have freedom. They've won the lottery. They are no longer constrained by the bondage they had before. In, in, in the purpose of God to redeem, he's going to draw them out of freedom to Pharaoh, freedom from the bondage they have. Uh, they... This is what he says. Look with me at, uh, let me see, which verse is it? Verse 22. You say this to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Isra Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So what God wants Moses to communicate to Pharaoh is, listen, my son Israel has served you. But now, they're going to serve me. They're going to be free from their bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, free from their loyalty to Pharaoh in Egypt, and now free to serve and be loyal to God. And God tells Moses Pharaoh's response. What is God going to do to Pharaoh? He's going to harden his heart. Pharaoh, in his rebellion, is going to resist the freedom of God. So the question here we have, and this is what's interesting about the way this is worded, who was in bondage, Israel or Pharaoh? What happens if Israel leaves? Well, the, enemy, the, the economy of, of Egypt is wrecked. And so what's funny is Pharaoh thinks that he is the one who has them in bondage. The reality is Pharaoh is in bondage to the people of Israel. Pharaoh can't live without Israel. In fact, God says, if you won't let Israel go, the cost of you keeping Israel is the life of your own son. What happens to Pharaoh's son? I don't want to give away the end of the story, but what happens? He dies. This is how much Pharaoh was in bondage to the people of Israel. He is willing to give up the life of his own son to keep the people of Israel. We are moved by God's purpose to worship him, what we realize is we now have freedom from our bondage to slavery, our freedom from bondage even to sin, and now we no longer have that bondage. We are free to serve the Lord in loyalty. We are free to serve the Lord and worship Him. This is how the New Testament describes it over in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read a fairly long section of this. Romans chapter 8, I think 17 verses, so you may want to turn with me and follow along to help kind of track with me. I'm going to try not to preach another sermon on it, but here's what it says. Romans 8, 1 through 17. 
There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what was Israel enslaved to? Egypt. What does the Bible here say we were enslaved to? Sin and death. So the parallel here between the Christian life and Israel is they were enslaved to Egypt, we were enslaved to sin and death, but it says here, we were set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has done away with the law, weakened by the flesh. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in his flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Long story short, because of sin, we were condemned to die, and we were unable to fulfill the law. So Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, and fulfills the law for us, and then dies on the cross for us. So when we put our faith in Christ, we die with Christ. If you're dead, what can death do to you? Nothing. A guy owes you money, you're going to kill him. On your way to go kill him, he gets hit by a car and dies. So you walk out in the middle of the street, give me my money or I'll kill you. I mean, what's he going to do? I mean, he's dead. What you, the threat you are posing to him, so I'm already dead. Well, what the Bible is telling you, that's true of us. Sin comes to us and says, you sin, so you die. But I already died in Christ. By faith, I died with Christ. And so death no longer holds anything over us. Verse 6 of Romans 8. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, who are in Christ, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. So look down at verse 12 of Romans 8 if you're following along with me. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but we live by the Spirit, having put to death the deeds of the body. Here's what he's saying. Would it make any sense for Egypt, having been, or Israel, having been saved out of slavery to Egypt, to go out into the wilderness and say, hey, school's out, time to put some vacation plans together. What do you say we go and check out the pyramids in Egypt, spend a couple of weeks, see the sights? I mean, what would you say? What are you talking about? You just got saved from slavery to that place. Why would you return there? In fact, this is going to be all throughout the Old Testament. God is going to tell the people of Israel over and over and over again, no matter what happens, don't go back to Egypt. If you're being invaded, don't make a treaty with Egypt. If your land is being destroyed, don't flee from your land to Egypt. If you need horses, don't go to Egypt and buy them. Why? Because Egypt is slavery. Egypt is bondage. And what the Bible says is we are free from that bondage. We're freed from that place. So if we're in Christ, we have been freed from sin and death in the very same way that Israel was freed from Egypt. And so therefore, we no longer are in bondage to obey the passions and desires of our flesh. We like to do bad things. Why do we sin so much? I'll give you two reasons, and these are theologically profound. Get your pens out. Are you ready? We sin a lot. One, we want to. Two, it's fun. That's all I got. They say, well, that sounds ridiculous. Take those two things away. See if people still sin. People are funny. They do what they want. Nobody gets dragged into sin kicking and screaming. We sin because we want to. We sin because it's fun. What if tomorrow God shows up and said, it's a sin to get a root canal? Who's going to struggle with that sin, getting root canals? I don't know what happened this weekend. I didn't want, I didn't want to do it, but I, oh, I, don't know, I ended up at the dentist. I got another root canal. What am I going to do? See, we don't do that. Nobody does that. It's ridiculous. We fall into these things because we want to and because they're fun. And what Jesus is saying, 
we don't have a problem with sin because we're poorly behaved. Listen, we have a problem with sin because we have a worship problem. We have a problem with sin because we think that thing, that activity, that behavior will provide for us that which God is not providing. Sin problem always begins with a worship problem. Why in the world, world would we, when we leave Egypt into the wilderness, go back to Egypt? Because we think God isn't good, he is not satisfying. You say, well, that, that would never happen. That's a ridiculous example. No, it's a perfect example. Because Israel's going to get out into the wilderness, and the first time they get a little low on food, what are they going to say? You know what? When we were in Egypt in bondage and slavery, we had meat pots full of meat. Everything was fine. I mean, sure, we were beat all day in our 24-hour shifts. Sure, I was separated from my family and I watched my son die on the job. But you know, I had all the food I needed. See, sin is always a worship problem where I think what I can get over there is better than what God is offering. And that's a way of saying God is not as satisfying as he makes himself out to be. When God is not satisfying, it is not because he is not satisfying, it's because our palate is poorly developed. All sin is a worship problem where we basically demonstrate God is not as good as he says he is, and that's why we continue to struggle with sin. Overcoming sin primarily is going to be derived from the ability to worship God who is much better than we could possibly imagine. All right, let's go back to Ephesians. Which book are we in? Exodus? Exodus chapter 4. Let's remind ourselves of the cost of this. The message Moses is supposed to give to Pharaoh, his people have freedom, not bondage, is this. Let my son, that is Israel, go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. We need to understand it's really, really important. So this... This might take a minute, and hopefully I can do this in a way that's clear. The cost of God's people to Egypt. If, if Egypt wants to keep Israel, what's the cost? Firstborn son. We're going to see that in the final plague. Anyone who doesn't put the, the blood on their doorposts, uh, the angel of death will visit upon them, and their firstborn son will die. So the cost to Egypt for trying to retain Israel is the firstborn son. So Israel, I, yeah, I'm going to give away the end of the story. But Israel gets out of Egypt. We're going to get there. And because they obeyed the Lord, their firstborn children did not die. So they leave Egypt with all their firstborn sons not dead. And what God says to the people of Israel is this. I am owed your firstborn sons because I didn't kill them. So therefore, your firstborn sons belong to me. So when you have a firstborn, you have to go to the uh, tabernacle and you have to pay a fee to redeem your firstborn son so you can keep him. And then what God says, in exchange for you keeping your firstborn sons, I will keep for myself the Levites. The Levites will be mine, and they will serve me as priests in the tabernacle. So God says to Israel, for you to have your freedom in me, what's the cost? Firstborn sons. So God retains the firstborn sons as the Levites, and they work in the priesthood of the Lord. They work in the tabernacle, doing the sacrifices and all the uh, rituals and routines of the, of the uh, worship in the tabernacle. How does that go? There's a problem. Look with me, Hebrews chapter 10. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. The law is but a shadow of good things to come. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are offered over and over again, make perfect to those who want to draw near. So what the author of Hebrews tells us is these priests that God redeemed as his firstborn sons, they could not, by offering the sacrifices year after year, make the people perfect. Verse 2, otherwise they would not have kept offering them. So if a sacrifice from a priest in the tabernacle could make people perfect, would they keep offering it? No. There would no longer be a need. But in these sacrifices, the author tells us, there's a reminder of sins every year. 
In fact, the, the priests for the, the Levites and these priests, their sacrifices year after year just reminded the people over and over again, you're sinful. Verse 4 of Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Verse 5, listen, this is crazy. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said this, sacrifices and offerings you haven't desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the book. So the priest, as verse 11, stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices year after year, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What's left to offer? It's done. There's no more sacrifice to offer when Christ offered the sacrifice of his own body. So Egypt to keep Israel required their firstborn sons. Israel to have a relationship with God, firstborn sons, but it wasn't good enough. God says, I will redeem you. What does it cost God? His firstborn son. This is where we encounter God in his grace. He says, you owe me. I will pay for it. And our hearts are filled with joy and gladness saying, wait, you sent your firstborn son? That's what you were saying all along. Your firstborn son would come to redeem me so that I might no longer have bondage to sin and death, but instead have freedom to be loyal to God and walk away from sin and death. What is our response to God's purpose in worship? To no longer live according to the flesh, passions of our flesh, but to walk away from those things and walk by the Spirit and say, I am yours, God. My body is no longer to be turned over to my desires. It's to be turned over to yours. It's an act of worship. All sin is a worship problem, not a behavior problem. Exodus 4.24. I'm going to read it. Pat didn't read it because I wanted to spare her. This is one of the weirdest three verses in the Bible. And that's why it's so much fun. So Moses took his wife and his kids and they're making their way and it says at a lodging place probably a holiday inn express the kids would have wanted a pool zippera would have wanted free breakfast you know how that goes and not a continental one you want a hot breakfast okay anyway uh at a lodging place on the way the lord met him and sought to put him to death whoa whoa simmered down what we just called him burning bush he leaves his home his family and the first thing you do is try to put somebody to death is Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So then God let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, again, this is a section of Scripture nobody has cross-stitched on a pillow. (laughs) Try it. I mean, it might sell. You might get some bucks for that. I don't know. Moved by God's purpose. Worship God by understanding this. I have God's people. I don't have my people. Now, there's a lot of very weird things. We're just not going to get into it. Just on time, and also it's a waste of time. But here's what we do know. Moses, a son of Abraham, called by God to redeem the people of Abraham, had a son who was uncircumcised. Now, I know today we're like, and... It's a personal decision. Everybody can make that on their own. No, that is not a, a deal. Genesis 17, 9, God says to Abraham, as a sign of my covenant to you, that I am going to bless the world through you and through your sons and through your family and your descendants, all the males will be circumcised as a sign of my covenant. This is one of the ways God intended to set his people apart for his redeeming purposes. In fact, it says in Exodus 12, if a foreigner comes into the people of Israel and wants to celebrate Passover with them, those foreigners would have to be circumcised, all of the males, before they could celebrate Passover with the people of Israel because it's a sign of God's promise through your people, through your offspring. 
through the one who is going to come from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there is a covenant. And the sign of that covenant, the redeeming covenant, is circumcision. Moses, on a mission of redemption, does not see the urgency of having a son who is circumcised as a sign of God's redemption. Do you see how that doesn't fit? And God says, I'm sorry, this is, something's cattywampus here. That's in the Hebrew. You don't see it. This isn't right. You're going on a, a calling of redemption with a son who is basically saying, uncircumcised, who gives a rip about redemption. And so God confronts him. He says, your son is my, is my son. He is a son of the covenant. Your son has been set aside like every other son of Abraham as a covenant member of my family whose primary purpose is to serve in the line that will bring the Redeemer. Moved by God's purpose to worship, God is saying to Moses, your son has served you as your son, Moses. You need to understand, your son, Moses, is no longer your son. He's my son. Your son has served you, and now he serves me. Moses took this sign lightly, and God didn't, as it's quite evident. God, by God's mercy, once the circumcision was done, he relented, and Moses went on his merry way, although his son had a pretty bad day. Let's put it this way. Those of us who function under, the co- function under the covenant of redemption, just to the people of Israel, we understand now that our primary identity are those who are found as members of God's people. People under the covenant of God are among the covenant people of God. Our primary identity in Christ is those of, of the people of Christ. In fact, the sign of circumcision wasn't simply a religious ritual. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in or really just verse 16. I'm going to read it. You may not get there quick enough unless you have Deuteronomy marked in your Bible. This is what he says, Deuteronomy chapter 10. The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, you are this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. He says the primary sign of a person under the covenant of God is not a physical sign of covenant. It's a heart that has been marked by the work of God himself. In fact, Stephen over in Acts in his great sermon is going to quote this verse and say, what is wrong with you people, you uncircumcised of heart? that you refused the Christ. How did they respond after he gave that invitation? They stoned him to death. What he is saying here is, when I'm moved by God's purpose, I am marked in my inner man, my, the, my heart and soul, that I am primarily identified as God's and among God's people. That if I am a member of God's covenant Family, if I am a loyal to the covenant-keeping God, then I will be loyal to the covenant God's family. Let me rephrase it this way. Moses' son, uncircumcised, is essentially saying this. You know what? I like God. In my rebellion, he showed up to me and offered me not only forgiveness, but also a calling. But you know what? God is great. His people are lame. An uncircumcised son is Moses saying, I love God, but you know what? If, my, if I can get my son to avoid the conflicts and issue with those people, because what's Moses' experience with Israel so far? He tried to save them, and they rejected him. Moses is saying this, I like God, I just don't like his people. And God is telling Moses by showing up to kill him, he said, guess what? You can't do that. If you love me, you love my people. God won't have it. To have God is to be primarily identified as among his people. Look with me at Luke chapter 14. This is Jesus in the same thing. Now, 
Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, and this is normal for Jesus when he had big crowds. He really wanted to do his best to maximize his effectiveness and maybe uh, multiply the crowds. That's sarcasm. Crowds were getting too, a little too big, so he preached uh, what we call a seat-clearing sermon. If anyone comes to me, he doesn't hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and his brothers and sisters and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Boy, there's a lot of people here today, you said. Hey, you know what? If you want to follow me, you've got to hate your whole family. And in the back, there's a little wrestling. The ushers open the door. They see it coming. They open up. Come on out. Get out of here. What is Jesus saying? Does he want us to hate our mother and father? No. Jesus is saying this. I, had a perf- I have a perfect relationship with the Father. I have been in perfect relational communion with God the Father for all of eternity. But ca- called by God the Father to leave his side to go on redemptive mission, I did that out of obedience and love. And Jesus is now saying, you, redeemed, moved by God in worship to function in covenant relationship with God, you can't hold on to your old life and your new life. He's saying the contrast should be this. Your love and devotion for God should be so significant that by contrast, if compared to your old life, the only way to describe it is hate. That seems kind of harsh. What he is saying is this. Understand, in Christ, he and his people now become our primary identity. Not our old people, not even our family. He is saying our primary identity is in him and in his redeemed people. So Jesus left heaven, suffered on earth and died for us to redeem a people for us, and then we look down on those people, just like Moses did. God redeems a people. Today we call it his church. He leaves heaven to do so. And then we look down our noses at these people. We look in Moses' life, it's kind of ironic. Moses, a sinner, is too good for Israel, sinners. Moses doesn't want to be connected with these people. If he did, he would have circumcised his son. But Moses doesn't like them. I should say this, if he doesn't like them now, he's not going to like them in 40 years. But he learned something about God over the course of this time. Moses gets over himself and says, yeah, I don't like them, but everything I don't like about them is true of me. I'm going to get off my religious high horse and say, these are my people. Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. Forgiven a massive debt, refuses to forgive his fellow prisoner. And then Jesus says to us, how often should we forgive one another? Just forever just till Jesus returns. Maybe another way of putting this, Jesus didn't die for you so you could hang out with people you like. If I am moved by God's purpose to worship, I recognize in worship I have God's people. I am not seeking to have my people. I am seeking to be a part of God's people. And Jesus didn't die for us so we could hang out with people we like or people have similar personalities or people have similar hobbies or people have similar backgrounds or people have similar voting habits or people have similar ways of educating their kids or people have similar economic situations. In fact, look at Acts 1 through about Acts 7. What's the one distinctive of the church in those chapters? Why are those people hanging out together? Why are, in fact, it was so mixed up, they didn't even all speak the same language. It it was so spread. People were traveling from all over the world to be a part of this, and none of these people should be hanging out together. Called by God's purpose in worship, we recognize we have God's people, not a people of our choosing. Okay, three things. We're going to close with this. Three things, each of the three sections. Here's a way of maybe thinking through this. Number one, about our calling. We no longer have a job, we have a calling. Maybe pick one of the areas of responsibility in your life, your job, your marriage, your parenting, your grandparenting, your retirement, whatever it might be. 
And maybe just ask this question. What would it mean to approach my job, one of those areas of responsibility, what would it mean to approach this area of responsibility instead of as a responsibility, but as a calling by a redeeming God? What if I saw that area of responsibility, parenting, marriage, grandparenting, retirement, work, what if that was no longer just a thing, it was a calling? How would I redefine how I function in that area if I understood that God has called me into that area as a redeeming God? How would I approach it differently? And you might jot down some ways you would do that. What about our freedom? I'll just ask this question. What do you need to do in faith today to live in freedom from sin? I don't know what your thing is. We all have one. Uh, I should rephrase. We all have at least one. It's that thing that's just hard to get over. Just can't seem to shake it. He said, you know what, if I did this one thing, I think as an act of worship, it's going to really limit my access to the ability to sin that way. So what's the one thing maybe you could do in faith that says, God, I love you so much, I want to limit my opportunities to sin in that way? Finally, what about people? If God has redeemed you into his people, the question we might ask ourselves, do you value church because of the commonality with the people of this church or the church you may fellowship in? Why do you participate with the people of God? Is it because we have a lot of common? There's a phrase for our Oregonians to the north, Portland. Do you know the phrase for Portland? It's a funny phrase. Keep Portland weird. You heard that phrase? Have you been to Portland? I don't think you got to try. It's going to be weird. But what, is, what, what that phrase is saying is there is a, uh, an honoring, a value of, you know, we do things different. We look at the world different. Our culture is different. For example, we're going to make sure there is not enough lanes for cars and there's too much bike lanes. That was, that wasn't on the script. That's just, but keep it weird. You know, yeah. There's plenty of you got a bike. There's plenty of places. You got a car. It, the I five is two lanes at the Rose Garden. Can you believe that? I mean, it's been two lanes at the Rose Garden for 25 years. Okay, I'm off. I'm sorry. <laughs> just keep Portland weird. But we don't want to hang out with weird people at church. I mean, I'll let you in on a little secret. There's a whole bunch of weird people at church. I wasn't going to say it, Berta, but <laughs> I'm not talking about you. I'm going to say, if you don't know who the weird people are, guess what? It's you. <laughs> Why is that freeing? Because that's the kind of people God redeems. God redeems people who don't have it together. God redeems people who are screwed up and screw up. God redeems people who can't get over their issues. God redeems people who are high maintenance. And then when we come to church, we want to hang out with people who aren't weird and don't have issues and are low maintenance. And God says, those people don't exist in my kingdom because those are my people. When we worship God and are moved by God according to his purpose, we are moved to have God's people and they're not like us. If I can co-opt that statement, let's keep the church weird.